Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled, Ask the Lama, Questions and Answers about Buddhism, by Lama Kathy Wesley. In this talk, Lama Kathy will read questions submitted by Dharma friends and offer answers about basic Buddhist teachings and meditation techniques. Sources include Dharma Paths by Kempo Carter Rinpoche. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Teksum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, and good morning. Uh, this is Lama Kathy uh, speaking to you on behalf of the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Tibetan Buddhist Meditation Center in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, it's great to see all of you today. I'm looking at the chat here, and I'm going to be watching for your questions uh, in uh, just a few minutes. Uh, this is, uh, we advertise this one as Ask a Lama because um, uh, it's something that we did back in the day uh, at KTC uh, just to give everybody an opportunity to ask questions of any kind uh, about the Dharma, and, uh, and I'll see what I can do to answer them. Uh, before we uh, before we begin, I want to thank all of the folks on social media who've been saying hi and uh, and so on during the last week that um, I've been observing my 25th anniversary as a as a teacher at Columbus KTC. Uh, the 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 last 25 years have been a bit of a blur uh, for me uh, in the um, in that uh, I've gone from one topic to the next topic, one activity to the next activity, uh, and just gone boom, boom, boom for 25 years. Uh, llamas apparently don't get vacations, although I did take a few. Uh, but the the last, um, but when I got out of three-year retreat, I think maybe I should start there, that when I got out of three-year retreat, Kempo Karthar Rinpoche basically said, um, uh, help the folks as you can at Columbus KTC. And then when you have extra time, travel and teach. And then a number of years ago, I, um, be, you know, many, many years before Kemper Pache passed away, I said, you know, do you think, I mean, I didn't get enlightened and therefore I'm just like a, uh, just any other confused person trying to help people with Dharma. And that doesn't feel right to me. And, and he said, I said, do you think I should um, uh, do uh, some other kind of retreat practice or something more? And he thought about it for a bit. And he said, um, no, uh, just um, it's OK. You don't need to do another retreat. And I said, um, no, the three retreat. And I said, well, that's great. So what should I do with the rest of my life? I was ready to ask him that question because I knew he would know the right answer. And he said, um, he thought about that for a little minute too. And then he said, no, just do what you're doing right now. Do it until you can't do it anymore. And I took that to mean that as long as my health and my mind held up, that I would be able to continue teaching. And so the folks at Columbus KTC have been really amazing uh, to me for this uh, 25 years, uh, letting me just do what I could to be a benefit and helping KTC with all of its amazing programs. And it's my hope uh, to continue teaching for some years yet, but I do understand that as I get older, uh, my ability to, um, uh, my stamina and my ability to go, go, go is uh, becoming less and less and less. So, but I feel really fortunate that I have uh, Lama Tom and Lama Adam to help me. And, uh, and I, you know, I just want to thank them and also the board members of Columbus KTC for helping to support me, particularly in the last five years, because I've begun to see little glitches with my memory. And I've begun to see that, like, I can't just talk forever about anything anymore. I need to rely on notes, like I, just like I did at the very beginning of my teaching career. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I want to make sure that the teaching is appropriate and, and good for everyone and that I'm appropriate and good for everyone because 
we, we all come to Dharma because we have confusion. And I'll be the first to, to say I still have confusion uh, every day. And I still make mistakes every day. And I still hope to learn every day. So um, I remember that even Kempo Kartha Rinpoche, um, before he passed away, we all looked at him as just an amazing example but he would have little, give little talks like this to his students um, in large groups even and say, look, I'm not enlightened. I've made mistakes. I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, my hope is that we can continue to work together toward Dharma. So I just wanted to say thanks to everybody who has said congratulations in the last week and all the people who prayed for me. And thanks to Columbus KTC for dedicating pujas for me at KTD. That was just incredibly touching. And I thank you so much for that. And also thanks to uh, associate lamas, uh, Lama Tom and Lama Adam. Uh, just really super appreciate your support during this, um, the, the, the last five years, especially as the stress of <laughs> trying to rebuild the KTC has begun to tell on me. So um, I do hope to continue teaching for some time yet, but we shall see. I may actually take a sabbatical at some point just to get a little bit of a break and do some practice. Uh, anyhow, so that's a little bit of thinking out loud for you this morning and thanking all of you for continuing to watch our, our Sunday Dharma Talk series. And, and I want to thank you in advance for any questions you might ask, because down in chat, whether you are on... Um, whether you're on YouTube or whether you are on uh, Facebook live watching this, you can type questions into chat and I will try to get to them today. Uh, I'll start with a short prayer. Uh, I'm going to recite uh, in English uh, a prayer of taking refuge and engendering the Bodhisattva motivation. From now until enlightenment is reached, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Through the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. In the Buddha, his teaching and the order most excellent, we take refuge until enlightenment is reached. Through the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. In the Buddha, his teaching and the order most excellent, I take refuge until enlightenment is reached. Through the merit of generosity and other good deeds, May we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. Or Palden Sawe Lama Rimboche, Dagi Chiwar Pede Denshala, Kadran Jembo Gurniche Sunte, Kusum Tuking Udrup Sao Du So. Okay, thanks, thanks again. So it's it's uh, it's time for Ask the Lama, and uh, I have a thank you for the folks who submitted questions through our question app on Google, and also those who ask questions on Facebook and YouTube. So I've got some of the, some of your questions down, and we'll get started. A lot of the questions have to do with the Bodhisattva. They're specifically asking about the Bodhisattva vow that we're going to be giving. Uh, Lama Tom, Lama Adam, and I are going to be giving July the 10th uh, in, at a park in downtown Columbus. And, uh, and so um, we're going to be doing that on the 10th. And so as a result, lots of people are asking, well, like, what's the Bodhisattva vow? Where does it fit in in Buddhist teaching and practice? And, and what's it all about? So I'll start by answering that question. Um, from the minute that we begin our Buddhist path, we are attempting to set aside our bad habits and trying to take on good habits. Be why? Because the Buddha believed that human beings were evolutionary, that their minds were evolutionary and that their minds could change. A person who acts badly will not always be such a person and so on because they have the option to purify their karma and to change the, the, the direction of their lives. The Buddha also said that because people are evolutionary, that means we're continuously evolving, not just from one lifetime to the next lifetime, because the Buddha believed in past and future lives. We're not just Im improving in, from one lifetime to the next. We're actually improving in the current lifetime that we're in. We can actually make changes in the current lifetime that we're in. And so this is why the Buddha, in his teaching on the Four Noble Truths, gave the teaching on the Eightfold Noble Path which is that we can change our thoughts, our words, and our actions gradually over time and evolve into awakened beings. 
And so because we have the capacity to change, this is sort of the foundation for all Buddhist practice in general. When a person begins Buddhist practice, they generally start with a vow ceremony. And that vow ceremony is called the vow of taking refuge. Sitcha Rinpoche calls this uh, the statement of our direction. He's saying, uh, when we take refuge, we're saying, the Buddha is my teacher, his Dharma is my path, and his Sangha is my community. And that in that way, we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and we take it with this motivation of um, the bodhisattva, taking it not just for ourselves, but for the benefit of all sentient beings. And we take it not just for this lifetime, we take it for all future lifetimes until enlightenment is reached. And so that's why when we started, and I started with the four-line refuge prayer, the prayer says from now until enlightenment is reached. So that's how we begin our Buddhist practice, by starting with refuge. But because we're trying to make some pretty major changes in the way we approach the world, in order to do our Buddhist practice, we're making changes in ourselves. We need a framework. And the Bodhisattva vow offers the framework for our cultivation of goodness so that we can attain Buddhahood. So the Bodhisattva vow, think of it as a framework. And that when we learn about the vow and take the vow and train in the vow, we are training our minds to become like the Buddha gradually and slowly over time. And again, because we're evolutionary, we will be changing every minute, every minute, every minute anyway. So why not create a framework that is more in keeping with where we want to go? So if refuge is a statement of direction, the Bodhisattva vow is a statement of how we want to make that journey. We want to make that journey not just for ourselves, but for all beings. And we want to make that journey until the goal is reached. The goal of enlightenment, that is, is reached. And so the vow then is a vow of training. And in fact, if you read the words of the vow, the words of the vow say, just as the Buddhas of the past trained in perfect bodhicitta and the six perfect virtues, generosity, uh, ethics, patience, and all the rest, just as they trained in the past, so I shall train myself and become like them proficient. So uh, what are we training in then? What is it that we're training in? Our base, we're training in our basic attitude. If you remember in the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, they have three things that you could boil the Eightfold Noble Path down to three instructions. The Buddha said, do no harm, practice virtue, and tame your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. That was the fourth statement. But the three basic statements are, do no harm, practice virtue, tame your mind. But how do we do that? How do we do no harm? How do we practice virtue? How do we tame our minds? And, and so for that, we have to go into the Four Noble Truths itself, where the Buddha said, suffering is part of life. That's the first noble truth. Suffering is part of life. Suffering has a cause. Suffering has a solution. And there's a path that leads to the end of suffering. That suffering is part of life is something we sort of already know. We have mental suffering, physical suffering, spiritual suffering. We have all kinds. But the Buddha made an interesting statement in the second noble truth where he said that our suffering comes from clinging, grasping, and fixation. We cling to and grasp and fixate on things. And of all the things we cling to and grasp on, it is our self-concept that we cling to the most. Um, as somebody uh, I knew used to say, we think my way or the highway. In other words, we are only about our own benefit in any situation. And so that is what we are training to undermine in the Bodhisattva. When we take the Bodhisattva vow, we're saying, okay, from, from my birth until this moment, it's all been about me. Yes, maybe I've wanted to help beings, but when I get cornered, I act badly. And because I act badly, I've got a problem and I just keep training in my selfishness and I need to find a different, better way. And so the Bodhisattva vow offers us an opportunity to train in this better way. And the better way is instead of saying me first, 
saying others first. And as you can see, you would need a framework for putting others first because it's not necessarily something we learn from childhood. And so because it's not necessarily something we learn from childhood, we need steps, we need a path, we need methodology. And so that's why the Bodhisattva vow and the Bodhisattva practice exists to give us that framework. And so how do we put others first? Well, we put others first by taking a vow that we will do our best to put others first. We take the vow and we say, I will train to put others first. And I will train to reduce and continuously reduce and, and, and resolve my own selfishness. And so really, in a way, that's what we're vowing to do. We're vowing to uh, reduce our selfishness and increase our love, not just for ourselves, but for all sentient beings. So increasing love, increasing compassion, and increasing the wish for other sentient beings to attain enlightenment also. So this is the framework we're learning in the Bodhisattva vow when we take the Bodhisattva vow. But then we have to maintain the Bodhisattva vow. We can't just make a, a grand gesture of making this aspiration one time in our life. We have to actually keep making it every day. When Kimball Karthar Rinpoche gave the Bodhisattva vow at his uh, at our home monastery at Karma Triana Dharma Chakra in upstate New York in Woodstock, he used to give it over a two-day period. He would teach about it on day one so that everybody understood what it meant to put others first. And then on the second day, he would give the vow. And the vow has two parts. The first part is taking the vow of, of aspiration bodhicitta, and the other is action bodhicitta. The aspiration is I will, I, I make the, the aspiration that I will attain enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. That's aspiration. The action is I will undertake the six perfect virtues, generosity, pa ethics, patience, diligence, meditation, and wisdom. I will undertake these six perfect virtues and use those to remove my selfishness and increase my uh, potential to benefit others. And so that's what happens in the Bodhisattva vow ceremony. We take a vow of aspiration and we take a vow of action. But then every day, Kemperbache told us we have to do maintenance on our bodhisattva vow every single day. When we get up in the morning, we have to say, uh, I am sorry for any mistakes I have made in, uh, in carrying out the bodhisattva commitment. And uh, I apologize for those to the Buddhas and to all sentient beings. And I am now going to purify that karma by reciting a prayer of confession to the Buddha. And after my prayer of confession, I'm going to resolve not to commit these again. And that's what's called the four powers of confession. So we, uh, we address the Buddha, we make our confession. Um, I, I harmed beings in this situation, I harmed beings in this situation, I harmed myself or other beings in this situation and so on, bringing them to mind and feeling regret for them. And then we resolve not to repeat them. That's a, a Buddhist confession. And then we retake the Bodhisattva vow, word for word, in front of the Buddha, who has been the witness for our confession. After taking this, um, this Bodhisattva, I'm sorry, is making this confession, we then retake the Bodhisattva vow, and it's then renewed for the next period of time. And then uh, if we are lucky, we can renew the Bodhisattva vow sometime uh, uh, in the middle of our day. We can think about, okay, in the last few hours, I've done this, 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 and this, and I regret those, and I make the aspiration that I do not commit these again, and may we all be free from suffering and come to Buddhahood. And then you take the Bodhisattva vow again. And, uh, and then in the evening, you can, before you go to bed, then recount, recount the last few hours, and did I harm beings? If so, what did I do? And so on. And may these be purified and may my bodhisattva commitment continue to grow and flourish. And then you take, retake the bodhisattva vow or you renew the bodhisattva vow again. So ideally one would do this three times during one's waking hours. And I know that's a lot, but so uh, Atisha, the great master who brought, who was one of many who brought Buddhism to Tibet, he wrote the four line refuge prayer that we recited at the top 
of this uh, Dharma talk today. I, in the Buddha, his teaching and the order most excellent, I take refuge until enlightenment is reached through the merit of generosity and other good deeds. Those are the six perfect virtue. May we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. Atisha explained that he added the he he added the bodhisattva commitment to this brief four-line refuge supplication so that we could renew our bodhisattva vow very quickly and very easily throughout the day. So that way we could use the full text of the bodhisattva vow in the morning and the full text in the evening, but in the midday we could use a simple four-line prayer to renew our bodhisattva vow. And maybe we don't have time to sit and remember what we've done in the past four hours, but if we can at least hit the highlights and bring some of those to mind, that would be swell. Also, wanted to let you know that you can set a reminder on your cell phone and the reminder on your cell phone, uh, which for me goes off in the middle of my day. And it says, it says just a few words. It says, how's your Bodhisattva vow? How is it? And then I recall and remember what I can and then recite the four line refuge prayer from memory in English and in my mind, even if I can't do it in a crowded group of people or whatever. So that's a little bit about the Bodhisattva vow. Our Buddhist path starts with refuge, and that's the statement of our wish to attain enlightenment. But the Bodhisattva vow provides us a framework for giving up the main cause of our suffering and the main cause of our continuous rebirth and samsara, which is selfishness. We have a format for giving up selfishness by putting others first but also by doing our best to do no harm, practice virtue, and tame our minds. And so by renewing the Bodhisattva vow uh, twice a day or three times a day, whatever we're capable of doing, this way we we keep after, as um, my mom used to say, you got to keep after those problems, keep after them. We, we keep up with our thoughts, words, and deeds, and we take responsibility for our thoughts, words, and deeds and say, I purify my thoughts, words, and deeds. This helps us in that it gives us something to uh, aspire to, and it gives us an opportunity to continuously maintain. I mean, if we, if we, when we buy a car, or get a car, we have to change the oil, put gas in it, clean things, and make sure that it runs right. And so it's the same with our Bodhisattva vow. We have to make sure that we clean it regularly so that we can actually make change. And so I hope this is helpful that, and that by taking the Bodhisattva vow, we then can go on to do other practices in our Buddhist path including meditation, mantra recitation, uh, even the Mahamudra practice, which begins with the Mahamudra preliminaries, also known as Nundro. If we take the Bodhisattva vow, that becomes our framework for the remainder of our practice, and it'll be with us forever. So uh, I hope that that was helpful. There's also an article you can look up on lamakathy.net called Maintaining the Bodhisattva Vow that gives uh, sample confession liturgies and um, the words of the Bodhisattva Vow so you can use the, that little handout to retake the vow uh, every day. Now, uh, the second set of questions, that was the first set of questions. People asked about the Bodhisattva Vow, where it fits in. Uh, Kemp Rinpoche said it fits in, in that once we've taken refuge, we need to have a pure motivation for attaining enlightenment. And the way to do that is by wishing for the benefit of others. But the other questions, uh, actually, some of the other questions, if you group them together, are about how do we make change in our life, how we make a change. So like, here's here's a person, uh, the, so these are the first questions I've I've, I've answered is, um, how can we, you know, what's the Bodhisattva vow about and how do we maintain it? So we, we've, we've covered that. And somebody also asked, how do we um, prepare for the Bodhisattva vow? You know what I would do if you're preparing to take the Bodhisattva vow? I would reflect on how fortunate we've been in our own life. Even though we've been through, many people go through really, really great difficulties in childhood or in young adulthood, they still have their minds and they still have the capacity to change their lives. And so we can feel some gratitude. So that's kind of where I would start is 
preparing Take the Bodhisattva Vow, I'd work on that feeling of gratitude and, and having a sense that I feel really grateful for the life I have, and I would like to attain enlightenment for the benefit of others. So, um, uh, so in any case, you see what I'm saying. So, um, the, um, uh, so, so we have that, we have that, uh, to, to, to work with. And so if you would like to prepare, that's one way to prepare. So, um, now, uh, let's see what else. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much, uh, the Bodhisattva questions, but then in, uh, in other questions, people were asking, uh, how do we, um, inspire devotion for daily practice and how do we get started with a daily practice? So, um, so next it's, um, we have these ways to inspire devotion for daily practice and diligence. And I think that, um, gratitude still comes, comes in first for me. If, if we can feel gratitude for our lives and, and for the fact that we've been through a lot, but we're still here and we can still evolve and change and that we can take advantage of the situation to purify our karma and to make a change in our attitude and actions, then uh, this is a, a really, really good thing to do to help keep us inspired. So I would reflect on our aspirations. Uh, Kemble Carthur Rinpoche, when we were in three-year retreat, they, uh, he gave us a, um, he gave us a set of five aspiration prayers. And these five uh, aspiration prayers, uh, he encouraged us to recite because they speak about what kind of activity we could have as a Buddha once we become a Buddha. May we help the sick and help the hungry, shelter those who don't have shelter. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do those things now, but it means that we want to make aspirations so that we can do them uh, in the future as bodhisattvas in a transcendent way, full of wisdom and love and compassion. So uh, I think that reciting aspiration prayers is a great way to inspire devotion. And uh, I have some favorites and I'll type them into chat. Um, my favorites are, um, it's called the uh, King of Aspiration Prayers. Uh, that's a really good one. And so that's a good one to start with. And there's another one called the Aspiration of Maitreya. And then there's another one called the uh, Aspiration of um, Mahamudra, of the Definitive Meaning. That one's a little bit difficult to understand, but it's it's fun to recite. Uh, and then another one is uh, is a, the the prayer to be reborn in Dewa Chen. There are many versions of this. And then uh, the, the, the last one is um, at chapter 10, uh, the dedication uh, chapter of the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life uh, of uh, Shanti Devo. I forgot to put his name. Okay, so those are, those are some of the prayers that you can look up online and, uh, and use as uh, recitation for daily inspiration because uh, sometimes we, we have doubts that we have Buddha nature or because of our faults, we feel sort of discouraged, like will we ever improve? And reciting the dedication prayers, uh, dedication and aspiration prayers can help lift us up and give us some inspiration for uh, daily life and uh, for practice. Another thing I enc encourage people to practice is something called Lojong. Lojong is called mind training uh, and it's training. Lo means uh, mind and Jong means training. So when we train our mind, we're training our mind in love and compassion. And um, when we undertake Lojong training, there's a way to practice Lojong while we're on our meditation seat. It's uh, mainly a practice of, uh, of sending and receiving or Tong Lin. We mainly uh, do uh, a practice on our cushion when we train in love and compassion, imagining with the out breath that we give goodness to others and removing suffering and, and practicing compassion on the in breath. And, um, and so as a result of that, we can practice training in the attitude of putting others first with giving love and goodness on the out breath and removing our selfishness by remove, removing the suffering from all beings and taking that on with the in breath.
But there's also an off-the-cushion practice that we can do as well. And the off-the-cushion practice for Lojong is uh, to think about and wish for the benefit of sentient beings in all activities. When we undertake a meeting or when we are going to see people, we can think, whatever happens in this situation, may I benefit beings in this situation? And I think that that helps us uh, to promote the bodhisattva motivation as often as we can during the day, because a lot of us have busy lives and we don't have time to practice on the cushion a lot. But Trungpa Rinpoche said that if we can maintain this attitude of wanting to benefit beings before we undertake work projects, or if we can think, may I benefit beings going into a meeting, or if as we walk through our day, we can mentally offer the beauty that we see around us to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, if we can make offerings mentally and uh, make aspirations and so forth, and also work with our own mental afflictions. Like when we see ourselves acting badly, we can't always uh, affect the situation in the moment, but then we can confess the fault later and continue to work toward change. And the, another thing we can do is we can use the Lojong practice that that goes with, um, that I'm calling the transformation of mental afflictions. Did I spell that right? No, I didn't. Okay. I may have spelled that right. I may have spelled it right. I may not have spelled it right, but the transformation of mental afflictions. And it's basically a formula that was uh, first mentioned in uh, by um, Chikawa Yoshi Dorje in the Great Path, I'm in, in the Seven Point Mind Training, but then commented on by Jamgun Kontrol the Great in the Great Path of Awakening, uh, where he says, when you uh, experience a negative mental affliction like anger or attachment and so on, if you can identify that mental affliction and say to yourself, I am feeling angry, or I am feeling frustrated, or I am feeling sad, if we can identify the feeling and then imagine that we take on the negativity of all beings in the feeling that we're having. He said, by doing that, our mental affliction changes in character. We're no longer uh, kind of going down the drain of depression with our bad feeling. We're actually taking that bad feeling and changing it. Instead of it being about me, 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 it's now about may my anger or may my sadness contain the anger or sadness of all beings. And by working with it in this way, may I and all beings be free of it. And may we all become Buddhas, which is the complete freedom from mental affliction. And Campbell Karth Rinpoche said, if you know you have a specific fault, it's good to kind of keep it in your mind and make a vow every day to tame that mental affliction. Like if you tend to get angry or if you tend to be selfish or if you tend to have this problem or that problem, you can actually think about it in the morning and make a, and make a, a promise to yourself that you're going to work with it throughout the day. And then when you notice yourself acting badly or being angry, you can use the formula that's in the Great Path of Awakening. And for those of you who have this 2005 edition, this is, uh, you can find that on page number 16 under the uh, slogan, three objects, three poisons, three seeds of virtue. And you identify it, I am feeling angry. And then you think, may my anger contain, meaning it's like your anger becomes a little vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and sucks up all the anger in the world, of which there's some right now everywhere. So may my anger contain the anger of all beings and by my working through it, because once we've stopped thinking about the object of our anger, once we've stopped thinking about the object of our anger, we exit the story of that anger. Like I am mad at this person for this reason. We're telling ourselves that story continuously until we realize that we're telling ourselves that story and we know that we have to stop. We have to change. This doesn't mean we're not going to resolve problems. It doesn't mean we're not going to apologize when we're wrong. It doesn't mean that we're going to allow people to treat us badly. What it means is we're going to choose to have a different re uh, response to it. We're not going to have an angry response. We're going to have a response that makes sense. And so we identify the feeling. 
we say, may I take on the negative feeling of all beings? And then we think, may I dedicate this process in which I take my anger and I reconfigure it and turn it into an aspiration for goodness? May this process benefit me and may it benefit all beings? And hopefully this is a way to practice all day, every day. Uh, because a Trangarimbache in one of his teachings said that a lot of his Dharma friends say they don't have a lot of time to practice during the day. But if they can use this kind of practice, um, that they can use even their mental afflictions to do practice with. And they also can use their um, their happiness to practice with. Usually when we're happy, we think, oh, this is wonderful. May it last forever. But how about instead of saying that, which increases our clinging, how about instead of saying, oh, I want this happiness to last forever, we think, hey, wait a minute, other beings are suffering. Let me imagine that I'm sending them all my love and compassion and all of my happiness. Let me just share it with everyone. There's no harm in sharing it. You don't lose your happiness. And in fact, it kind of increases when you share it with other people. So in this way, we can be practicing even when we're not on our meditation cushion. So it's, it's, that's a, something to, to keep in mind. So, um, so that is um, one of the other things that someone asked. Someone asked, um, do you have uh, suggestions for counteracting pride? And then another uh, person asked, what is the best way to regain your composure after you get angry? I would say the best way to regain composure after we get angry is to start by just quieting our mind and bringing our attention to something simple like the breath. Or if you're a mantra practitioner, you can bring your attention to uh, the mantra you like the best. Let's say it's Chen Rezi, the Bodhisattva of compassion, or Tara, the, the feminine aspect of compassion, or the medicine Buddha. You can think of that mantra. If your mind is just going around and around and around because you're still feeling anger, you can bring your attention back in, inside yourself, either by attending to your breath as it comes in and comes out, or if you, um, uh, if you have a mantra practice, you can bring your mind either to the Buddha or Bodhisattva of the practice and visualize the Buddha or Bodhisattva as being present in front of you, or you can recite the mantra of that uh, Buddha or Bodhisattva, and this will help a lot. And, uh, and so that is one way to regain composure after you get angry. Um, and then you can use the, uh, uh, the slogan that we just talked about, three objects, three, uh, uh, three, three objects, three poisons, three seeds of virtue, in order to uh, imagine taking on the anger and suffering of other beings. And uh, so hopefully this moment of composure will help you be able to key into the transformation practice. And then the person who said, uh, how, how do we have any suggestions for counteracting pride? There's, there's two ways that we encounter pride usually. Some of it, most of it, most of the time it's ours. And, but sometimes it's others. Other people act in a high-handed way toward us and, and we feel offended. And um, so I'm, I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about both. When other people treat us badly, the first thing to remember is that they are suffering. As, uh, as one of my uh, friends who is a counselor says, hurt people hurt people. People who have experienced trauma or difficulty in their lifetime are wounded inside. And it's not easy for them to get around in everyday life because there's always reminders of what they've been through. They're, they're constantly revisiting and in, in painful situations that remind themselves of what they went through. And so it's really, really hard. And they've got to do, I guess you could say, extra work to try to maintain their composure and not to be, not to act in a way that's harmful to others. So when we are being harmed by other people because of their pride, when they treat us badly uh, or they uh, act as though they're superior to us and so on, we have to remember that they're hurting and that this is why they're doing what they're doing. It's not, doesn't give them an excuse. Um, it doesn't mean that they, what they did is not wrong. It's still wrong. 
but how are we going to respond to that wrong? Are we going to respond to the wrong in a in a like a knee jerk reaction way, or are we going to respond to the wrong in a, in a way that is measured and that brings about healing in the situation? And so that's what we have. That's our challenge: is we have to try to find a creative way to heal a situation. So that's a little bit about how to work with um, pride when arrogance is pointed at you by someone else who's acting arrogant towards you. You take a breath, just like we were talking about with anger. You take a breath and you recognize that the person is hurting or they wouldn't have said those things or done those things. And that and re being reminded of that, then you can go to them and say, look, what you said hurt me. And I need to talk to you about this. And so hopefully in that way, we'll be able to engage in a more constructive conversation. But when we see ourselves being high handed, oh, it's so hard, isn't it? We have to con we have to admit that we have been wrong and it is not easy because everybody wants to be liked and everybody wants to be seen in the very best light possible. But at some point we have to recognize that we're flawed just like everybody else. So when we see that we're acting in an arrogant and prideful way, we have to use the same slogan and say, pride has never gotten me anywhere. It's only caused me pain and suffering. And so recognizing that I want to tame my pride, I at this moment say, may my arrogance take, uh, take in and contain the arrogance of all being, and may I and all beings be free of it, and may we become Buddhists, which is the complete freedom from that and try our best to remember that all beings have Buddha nature. And in that way, we are all equal. We may have different capacities, but we all have Buddha nature. There's not a single being that lacks it. And so we have to try to deal with our own pride in that way. So hopefully that will, uh, that will help with those two kinds of situations. Um, then uh, another person asked, uh, asked for me to um, uh, to share a story um, called "Horns on My Head or Nose on My Face." Okay, you asked you asked me to share this story, and I will try to share it in a very brief way. This all goes together with um, noticing our bad actions and then trying to fix them. Um, Campbell Carthur Rinpoche said one time, "He, there, I'm going to tell two stories. The first one will be what Rinpoche said." He said, um, it's very good for you to make, for all people to make a list of their biggest faults so that they won't be offended when pe other people point them out. I think this is very good, a uh, very good practice to do. The second thing he said, he says, is um, when um, people criticize you, there's one of two possibilities. They're either right or they're wrong. And he said, in either situation, your job is to be is to be patient and compassionate with them. And so he said, if they're telling you that you have a fault and you don't have that fault, it's as though they're saying to you, you have horns on your head, which you don't. And so you know that they're just seeing things unclearly. They're not seeing things clearly. And so you can think, I don't have horns on my head, so I don't need to be offended. I can be patient with this situation. And then the other possibility is that they could be right. And if they're right, it's as though they've said, you have a nose on your face. And so if, if you think about it, them telling you that you have a nose on your face is just stating the obvious. And so in that way, you also don't have to get mad at them for stating the obvious. You have a nose on your face, so do your best to be patient and not to be angry when they point out your faults, if you actually have those faults. And, um, and if you don't have those faults, still don't get angry because they're talking about something that isn't existent. And so being able to use the idea of uh, horns on your head or a nose on your face to remember that you need to be patient in all situations I think that's really uh, a, a beneficial thing. And uh, and so if we have the opportunity to do what Rinpoche said and make that list of our greatest faults, this will be a help. He said, because it, that way, if they're telling you you have a nose on your face and you know which of your faults it is, you can basically say, yep, you're absolutely right. I have that fault. And, uh, and I'm working on it. So... 
in this way, uh, we can um, consider uh, uh, how to work with our own faults. Now, there's one other little story from Rinpoche I'd like to tell. Campbell Carter Rinpoche once said, if you have a problem with one person, it could be that that person just isn't seeing you clearly, that the problem is with that person. He said, but, he said, if you have a problem with this person, and you have a problem with this person, and you have a problem with this person, and you have a problem with this person, he said, you've got to open your mind to the possibility that it could be you who is actually in the wrong. It could be you that has the, the improper attitude. It could be you who's causing the trouble. And that's really super hard to hear. Uh, and But we have to hear it because otherwise, how will we make any change? If we don't know what's wrong, how can we make a change? And so once again, the, in the Great Path of Awakening, when people point out our faults, we're taught to say, thank you very much for pointing out my fault. I understand and I, uh, I will do my best to make amends for this fault and to try my best to be a different person. So in that way, we can have uh, a different outcome. So, um, so that's another question uh, to answer for today. Looking at my time, we have about uh, maybe 10 or 15 minutes left. Let me see how many questions uh, we, we, we took from the uh, earlier question. Someone asked, when I'm reciting Amala, uh, let's see if I have mine with me. No, I didn't bring it, uh, but I do have my wrist mala. Oh, wait a minute. Here it is. Yeah. When, uh, when I'm reciting mantras on a mala, um, how many do I count when I have finished a mala? And those of you know uh, that malas have a head bead, sometimes called the guru bead, because in the olden days, your guru would give you that bead from uh, his or her own rosary, and that that would become a blessing for yours. For yours, um, so you would start at the guru bead, and uh, the Tibetans tend to use their left hand for mantra counting, and you uh, use your thumb, you, you you drape it over your index finger, and you use your thumb to pull as a hook to pull the beads forward. And that when you get all the way to the other end of the mala and you're back at the uh, at the head bead or the guru bead again, that uh, once you get to the guru bead, there are two traditions. Kemperibache taught us both. One tradition is when you get to the head bead, you turn the mala around so you don't cross over the head bead, and then you keep reciting your mantra. But then Kempo Kartharimshe, when we were in three-year retreat, said, you're trying to count your mantras quickly. Just keep going when you get to the end. Just keep going. Just go across it and keep going. So whichever of those two methods you use, when you get to the end of your mala, you will have recited 100 uh, prayers or 100 mantras. And the, and the reason for this is that there are extra beads on the mala, and those extra beads are what um, one teacher said to me, they're called fulfillment. Like here's an extra bead. This, this extra bead is at the quarter mala spot. This extra bead's at the half mala spot and so on. And these are extra prayers. Plus every mala generally has eight additional beads so that each mala has 108 beads on it. But those eight beads, and the, any of these extras are called fulfillment. They fulfill any mistakes that we've made in recitation, such as mistakes in pronunciation, going too fast, uh, forgetting syllables or putting things in there that don't belong, uh, and uh, or mispronouncing any or having a bad attitude. And it helps to fulfill any mistakes that we make. And the other good thing about this is that we this way we only throw out eight per mala. Uh, because I know some people who might be a little obsessed who say, well, I actually should not count uh, 50 of those 100 and, and so on. The eight extras are a universal, I call it a universal fudge factor, uh, a universal fulfillment factor to fulfill and to uh, purify any mistakes you've made. So beads, when you finish one when you finish a recitations on one full set of beads, it's a hundred. So I hope that helps. Another question uh, from uh, today's list is, um, this is kind of a, 
uh, here's here's a, a, a difficult one. Well, uh, let's start with the easy one. The person is asking about metta, which is loving kindness meditation versus Tonglen, and why metta is not taught as often in the Tibetan tradition. Well, I've got to be honest, I can't tell you why, but I am making a guess, and that is that the tradition that we learned of uh, of sending and receiving meditation does come from India. It came from the great Indian master Atisha, who brought it to us from Indonesia, where he had gone to learn it from Serlingpa, the great master of Indonesia. So it could be that for the Tibetans, that practice of Tonglen, where you breathe out and imagine you're giving goodness to others and then breathe in and think you're removing suffering from others. This practice of Tonglen in some ways replaced meta meditation for us. However, I, in my own uh, uh, teaching, have taught metta to other people, and, and the Dalai Lama has taught metta to other people, even though it's not strictly part of some of the traditions, they teach it anyway. Why? Because for many people, it's much easier to do metta practice, much easier to, there's not a lot of thinking, it's just very quick. You can imagine uh, sending out love first to yourself, then to everyone close to you. Then you imagine sending love to your uh, family and dear ones, then to your community, the world, and so on. And, and when you get out to the farthest reaches of your imagination, you just let your um, visualization go and just let your mind come to rest and dedicate the merit of your development of compassion or metta or loving kindness. So um, that's, uh, that's the best I can uh, answer on that. Um, also, uh, the other good thing about metta is that you don't have to worry about uh, the concerns that some people have when they do Tonglen, because when they're breathing in and removing suffering from others, sometimes they get a little nervous about that. And even though this is an imaginary exercise and it's only imaginary suffering, they, they still feel uncomfortable breathing it in. Kempo Karthar Rinpoche, in his book, Dharma Paths, he offered a workaround for that. He said, when you breathe in the suffering of others, think that it meets your bodhisattva motivation and that when it meets your bodhisattva motivation, all of that suffering dissolves into nothing and disappears. And I think that's a really good way of working with the, the fear and concern that we might have the, uh, about, uh, about the, the taking on the suffering of others. So um, let's see. I think I have time for one or two more questions. And I'm really sorry for the folks who've written questions in the chat today. Uh, I'm, hand, I'm handling the, uh, the pre-questions here. Um, someone, uh, but let me see, there's, um, oh dear me. Um, there was one question about, um, oh dear me, about what to do with uh, insects that infest uh, your home. Uh, yeah, I know. It's like, how can you be a bodhisattva and kill, and kill insects, right? I don't even know what to say about this except that um, I heard Kempo Kartha Rinpoche answer this question, and I'll tell you what he said. He said, um, at KTD, the monastery, he said, we had to spray us so to kill insects in the kitchen, wouldn't bring disease into the kitchen. He said, um, you know, he said, it's not the right thing to do, and we have to confess the fault of killing them, and we have to make offerings on their behalf and make aspirations that in future lives we have better relationships with them than we did in this life. But he said, sometimes you have to do these things for the benefit of your family, your home, and your community. And so I think that the, the difference for us as Buddhists is that we can we still can, if we wish to, uh, kill uh, insects that cause disease uh, and carry disease, but we would do so in a mindful way and with a great deal of regret and with an aspiration that we never, ever have to kill again. So uh, I don't know if this is helpful, but I hope that it helps a little bit. We have to acknowledge that it is negative karma to kill, but by the same token, we're trying to benefit beings and we can pray for the beings that we harm and pray that in future life that our relationship with them improves. Because you're right, uh, we do have, um, we do have uh, relationships with these beings going forward. And that's why if we have a bad relationship with someone, it's good to heal it as best we can from our side during our lifetime. Oh, so many good questions in so little time. Oh, dear. Uh, 
Okay, here's one more. Um, and uh, again, I'm just really sorry that I couldn't get to everything, but I will make notes of these other questions and then I will try to answer them in a separate video that I will put on the Columbus KTC Facebook and YouTube. I'll just sit and answer the rest of the questions later. Uh, and uh, then it'll just be an extra recording that you'll see on Facebook or on YouTube. So that way I'll get to everybody's questions, uh, if not today, tomorrow. Someone said, um, uh, well, there were two really good questions and I'm gonna start my second session with that, with this one really excellent question. Does the mind exist inside or outside the body? Can't wait to answer that one. I will do that in the, in the edition, second edition of Ask the Lama. But then as one other, this will be the final questions. A person said, some do a lot of meditation practice and, and Dharma practice, sometimes not so much. Can you give me a minimum daily practice to do? And I think this is an excellent question because I remember years ago, um, the great master Bhartatukha Rinpoche was answering a question similar to this for someone. And he said, you know, he said, sometimes we, um, add a lot to our practice. We'll add this practice and we'll add and add and add. And he said, and after a while, he said, we've probably added a little too much and our practice begins to become too heavy for us to carry. He said, when you begin to get the feeling of, of um, resentment or um, oppressed, when he said, when you start to feel oppressed by your practice, what you can do is actually cut your practice back a little bit so that it becomes more reasonable for you. And then after it's become more reasonable, then you can make um, better decisions about what to add and subtract from your daily practice. And then I would also add to that, that it would be really great if you wanted to talk it over with a meditation instructor uh, or a mentor, because we have uh, we have Lama Tom, Lama Adam and myself at KTC, but then there are also the meditation mentors. Uh, and if you would like to do a meditation mentorship, you can write to um, info at columbusktc.org. Um, and that, um, let me see if I can type that in for you. Uh, and so in that way, you can, um, um, you can um, write and uh, ask for a connection to a mentor who can answer some of the questions for you about your practice and how to arrange it and how to organize it. But what I've told other people is that um, it's good to set a minimum and to make the minimum so easy that you can't fail to do it. Because uh, if you set a giant minimum practice and there's just no way you can do it every day, you're going to like not do it and not do it and not do it. And then also feel guilty because you're not practicing. So um, I know someone and their practice, the way they explained it to me was that they do their prayer of taking refuge and engendering bodhicitta every morning when they wake up and they do it every evening before they go to bed. In fact, they keep a laminated piece of paper by their bedside so that when they get, before they get out of bed, they read their refuge prayer so they don't forget it. And then I know another person who besides doing refuge morning and evening made a promise that they would do at least seven mindful breaths a day in meditation, that they would sit, do a refuge prayer and sit and mindfully do mindful breathing, breath awareness meditation or shamatha, uh, for a count of seven or 21 or three uh, counts of 21 or whatever. And that that was their minimum practice. And uh, and that's a really, really good thing to do. Kempo Karthar Rinpoche said that if you have made any promises to your teacher, such as that I will recite, teacher, I have promised you that I will recite 100 Shenrezi mantras a day. He says it's very good to, to keep that one first if you can, and then add other practices around that. And of course, morning and evening refuge kind of embraces your whole day with Dharma so that the whole day uh, has some connection to uh, your spiritual life and practice. So um, this is uh, kind of where we are, where, where we're going to have to stop today. But I'm hoping that this idea of being able to do practice throughout the day has been helpful to you. And that this is something that will um, that will sort of feed your practice as you go through life. And um, also, if you have questions that you didn't get to ask today, put them in chat right now. And that I'll look at these when I go to make the uh, the the annex or um, we shall call it 
child instead of son of. We'll call it child of Askalama. Uh, and I'll be recording that sometime in the next couple of days. So um, let's dedicate our merit. We dedicate the merit of this session to all suffering beings because we're all suffering in some way or another, making the aspiration that through this merit, may all achieve the omniscience of Buddhahood, may it defeat our common enemy, wrongdoing, from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may we free all beings, may we free all beings, may we free all beings. Okay, thanks everyone, and I hope you have a good week, and I hope to uh, that you will join us next uh, Sunday at 11.30 for another Columbus KTC Sunday Morning Dharma Talk. Omane pe mehong. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.